Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 19. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And this is the word of the Lord. Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for a new year. We thank you for a year gone by. Uh, Father, we thank you for a new day. Father, I pray that every day we'd recognize as a gift. Father, a gift that, that is not guaranteed us. A gift that, as Martin Luther was always concerned about, might be a gift that might never come. Father, we live in a world where we are assured of tomorrow in many ways. But Father, you don't promise our days. I pray that as we consider this next year, as we consider our text today, we'd recognize the weight of what a soul-bearing human means. Father, be made in your image and to have a soul is a mighty thing, is a fearful thing, is a weighty thing. Father, let us be a people, let us be a church that considers these things. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The text today has been something I've spent a good bit of the past year in. It's a text that I relied on pretty heavily a year ago. It's one that is incredibly helpful for me in counseling. Uh, it's one that's incredibly helpful for me in leading my family. I pray that today you would see in Hebrews 3, 12 through 19, this picture of competing realities. The title of today's sermon is Competing Realities. We often like to launch our salvos from this pulpit at the culture around us, and that is definitely a primary target. When we consider the enemies that face the church of God, we know that there's the devil and the world, and we fire our arrows back at them, right? We are equipped with the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, and we go into battle. But there's a third enemy, and that third enemy is the flesh. It's us. It's this fearful flesh that Paul wants to be rid of in Romans 6 and 7. Who will rescue me from this body of death, he cries out. And in many ways, we feel the realities of that body of death as we consider the past, as we look to the future and our concerns. We wrestle with that all the time. Whether it be through health scares or whether it be through mental struggles, whether it be through relational challenges, we recognize that the flesh is also an enemy that is constantly with us. And so while the world may be launching different perspectives at us all the time, trying to pull us to a different direction as we have seen throughout Hebrews and even through Joshua, there's also the ever-present reality that our flesh wants to bring us to a different truth, to a false truth. And so when we talk about competing realities, it is not just simply the church versus the world. That's the easy one. It's the one that we like to spend a lot of time on, but there's also then you versus you. And so when we look here in Hebrews 3, we're coming to, in some ways, a bit of a climax of the first five chapters. And in this kind of climax is this chief warning that takes an entire chapter to unfold. And in this warning, we're given a picture of what could be, of what was, and then exhorted into what should be. We're taking the truths that he has already presented to us and the fact that Jesus is superior to the law, to Moses, 
to anything else, any other hope of salvation we might have. It's showing us how it actually hits the road for us. So the first thing I want you to see today is that we have to take the danger seriously. Take the danger seriously. I was going to walk through our passage today. I'm just following my regular outline of our passage. And starting in verse 12, we have this first phrase of watch out, right? Watch out, beware. Be careful. And we've already tackled a couple warnings already in Hebrews, and there will be several more that we'll see throughout the rest of the book. And I find that the biggest concern that most Christians often have when reading these warnings is worrying about falling away. And you might say, well, that, make, that makes sense. That's what he's saying, right? Be careful lest you fall away. And the Christian reads that, and they walk away with the chief concern of fall away. In a similar way that you might walk up to a little yellow sign at Lowe's that says, caution, slippery. And you walk away saying, that's probably slippery. That would be an appropriate estimation of what that sign is, right? But I think when it comes to these particular passages, when it comes to these warnings, because the caution sign says fall away, all of a sudden we become more worried about the result than the danger. And you might think that that's a false bifurcation. I don't think it is. I don't think it is. We should be more worried about the danger that the caution sign shows us than the result. We're in a unique position compared to just shopping at Lowe's. For instance, if we were at the Grand Canyon, right? Nine to 11 people a year die at the Grand Canyon and several of those are from falling off the cliff. Is death the danger at the Grand Canyon? No, no it's not. Death is the result. Death is what happens if you succumb to the danger, right? It's the result. The danger at the Grand Canyon is your overestimation of your ability to skirt the edge. For instance, one father thought it would be hilarious to trick his young son of five years old by jumping off of the edge of the cliff onto a little ledge that's just below the edge of the cliff. Well, he overshot it by 3,000 feet overestimation of being able to just land on this little ledge just here. The danger is that we overestimate ourselves. <coughs> For us, we should recognize, should you leave that sign when you walk away more afraid of death or more aware <coughs> of your inestimable pride? Why for us in these passages can we separate the danger from the result? Because, listen, clearly, if you walk away from anything today, it's this. For the Christian, for the Christian, there can be no falling away. It won't happen. The real Christian, the true Christian, will not fall away. We are told in Scripture, in so much as you are in Christ, you are not in danger. You are in not in danger. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work, that's Jesus, in you will bring it to completion. Romans 5, 9 through 11, since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we're reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13-15. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and in belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Church, you need to have these verses. You need to believe these verses. You need to trust these verses. So for the Christian that is chosen, that has been paid for, 
that is being sanctified. For the Christian who is no longer an enemy of God, but reconciled to him by the blood of Jesus Christ. For the Christian who has a good work started in them by God, that will see it through to completion. Is there danger of falling away? No. There is not. You will not fall away. And so then the challenge for us in this is, well, what danger then are we exhorted against? What should we take from the caution sign? What should we who cannot fall away if you are a true Christian? What danger should we walk away with? Verse 12, the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin, that's the danger. And the question then is, naturally, why? Why is that dangerous? Why is that the danger that we should be concerned about? Hear me clearly, because this, the deceitfulness of sin, sin present in a person who claims to be a Christian on a regular pattern shows unbelief. A life given to sin, particularly unrepentant sin, shows a pattern of unbelief. I know already you might think that I'm already talking out of both sides of my mouth, and it will feel that way. It often does with the things of God sometimes. But here's how you solve that tension. Here's what you have to recognize that the scriptures give us and that we're going to explore here today. We're dealing with categories of people. Categories of people. We're going to talk about a few of them, but it's all the same picture today. For instance, in the scriptures we have God, Jesus talking about how he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. There are sheep, there are goats. There are not shoats. Make sense? Sheep and goats, there's two. <coughs> you have Israel, you have not Israel. You have God's chosen people, you have those who are chosen for destruction. There are categories that we fall into. The Bible gives us four rather large books dealing with these as a type. A whole generation is put on display for us. I don't know how many of you like history, but I, I enjoy it a good bit. That's <laughs> half of this sermon is, is what we're exploring. I like to watch World War II stuff. I like to look at these generations and how they lived and, and, and what happened for them, what marks their generation, what came before and what comes after, what's the result. We are given, in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, a picture of a whole generation, able to watch them from beginning to end. That's a lot of power. That's a lot of information. That's a lot to help us in understanding this category of people. They are on display for us. And then we see another whole generation in Joshua, right? They're the ones who go over. So now we're at five books with two generations. And we jump into the spin cycle of Judges, right? In Judges, we see a third generation from the wilderness. And then two more play out over 410 years. And so we have this picture of Israel, a category of people. They stand in opposition to who? Everybody else. The rest of the world. Israel, God's chosen people, going to the land that he has provided for them. And we see, for instance, in Judges 2, verse 10 through 14, we touched on this at the end of our Joshua series. It says this, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. They died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Can you imagine that? The generation after the one who saw their parents die in the wilderness over 40 years, takes the promised land, sees the victories of Joshua, sees hail fall from the sky to kill their enemies, sees walls fall down, sees the victory of walking into God's promise, and their children didn't know the Lord or what he had done for them. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord 
the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over. And so hear me clearly. The goal with this warning, and the goal with every warning, is to do one thing. It's to expose true Israel. It's to expose true Israel. The goal is to expose true Israel every time. How do we know this? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Chapter 10 and chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians are, are ones that you should probably know more than 1 Corinthians 13, okay? Um, <laughs> love is the ultimate gift, okay? Got it. You can get that plaque at any Christian bookstore. You need to know 1 Corinthians 10 and 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 10, we're going to talk about right now. 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection, important thing. 1 Corinthians 10, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Catch it, that we have this people, this generation, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the people who left Egypt, they did everything that we read about in Exodus two years ago. They did everything that was prescribed with the tabernacle. They did the sacrifices twice daily. They ate the bread of heaven. They had water come from a rock that followed them that was Jesus. They experienced all the blessings. One of my favorite sermons was when I was able to do Exodus 19, the one before the giving of the law. All the smoke and fire and thunder and presence of the Lord descending on Sinai. They saw it with their own eyes. And what happens? Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. They were overthrown in the wilderness, they did everything. But what happened? First John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, and it might become plain, clear, obvious. That's what plain means. Plain, that they are not of us. So we see that kind of chief fear that I think most Christians would have is Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The struggle I know we feel is how do I know that I know? How do I know that I know? First John, read First John. That's all about that. And it's describing everything that we see here that Hebrews wants us to take seriously. Recognizing that just because we say that we do things in the name of the Lord doesn't mean it's in the name of the Lord. One podcaster I was listening to recently said, if I'm not intentionally doing it for God's glory, and he gets glory from it, it's a happy coincidence. It is not a work born by me through the Spirit for the glory of my King. It's his work in a world that he is sovereign over. And so for us, we need to recognize that when we feel this tension of how do I know that I know, that's a good question. Because let me tell you who's not concerned about how do I know that I know. Those that don't know him. I have seen so many times over two decades of ministry that the people who are concerned about whether they are of God are people who are usually following God. 
The ones who do not care don't ask that question. They don't. But what I do see more often than not is people take that promise and rest in it without doing anything of what it says to do. Because the danger for us is that we actually know not God, but the world. That we know ourselves, but not God. See, in John 10, verses 14 through 15, Jesus says to the Pharisees and to the crowd, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And so for the one who might be afraid of being in front of the Lord and him saying, I never knew you, depart from me, we can know that he knows us if we're actually his sheep. John 10, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. And then what happens for the sheep? And my own know me. My own know me. Here's the thing. Most Christians, <laughs> I hate speaking in generalizations, but we're doing, doing generations here, so suffer me some generalizations. Most Christians who are faithfully seeking the Lord are going to heaven. Like, that's not the problem. The problem is that they spend most of their life while genuinely loving the Lord, living in fear, living without the power that the Spirit would bring, not doing the things that he would call them to. Because a sheep who knows the shepherd isn't worried about whether they're a sheep and whether the shepherd's their shepherd. The only one who's worried about that is the goat who's outside the fence that John 10 talks about. The only one who's worried about that is the one who looks around and doesn't see a shepherd. If you're a sheep, you don't have to worry. That's the point of a shepherd. That's the point of a gate. That's the point of the fence. And so the call for Hebrews is you have a superior Savior why are you living the most minimal restfulness? Why are you living the most minimal life? He's called you to so much more. You're safe. That's the point. John 10, 24 through 30, he goes on to say this. The Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? Why are you hiding things from us? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you. And what? You don't believe me. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Why? Because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. And rather than believe him for who he says he is, the next one is, and they want to stone him. Tell us plainly, I have, but you don't believe. And so do you hear what's happening in these passages? Exposing the true Israel. Exposing the true Israel. 1 Corinthians 10, 6-7. This is where we started in verses 1-5. through 5. Verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us. You catch that? Your fathers did all this. They had the food. They had the cloud. They all did the thing. They all drank the same spiritual drink. Nevertheless, most of them, God was not pleased. And they were overthrown in the wilderness. These things took place as examples for us. That we might, might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. You hear the pronouncement? It's not just that he wasn't just pleased with them. They're examples for us that we might not desire evil. He wasn't pleased with them because while they were doing all that, while they were baptized into Moses and in the sea, eating the same spiritual food, drinking the same spiritual drink, while they were doing all of that, they were still desiring evil. 
That's his summation of them. And so he says very clearly, verse 7, do not be idolaters, as some of them were. Don't desire evil. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Take the danger seriously. The question is not, am I saved? The question is not, will I fall away? The question is, am I part of true Israel? Because as we see in our text today, and last week, well, two weeks ago, the generation in the wilderness was not true Israel. Now listen, if you were in Egypt and someone came up to you and said, hey, where's the Israelites? Where are the people of Israel? They would point out where? Into the wilderness, where Israel was wandering around for 40 years. But are they true Israel? No. Who was? Moses, Joshua, Caleb. Three. That was true Israel. That was the remnant. And then in a blessed way, that generation's sons and daughters. And praise God for that. Those who would then go inherit the land. That was true Israel, but the generation who died in the wilderness, not true Israel. So these two categories that we have carry us through the entire scriptures. We see this type, 1 Corinthians 10, 6. This was an example for us that we might see these things, that we might heed the danger, that we might not desire evil as they did. So taking the danger seriously, what are we supposed to do then? That was all for verse 12. Verse 13, we walk in faithful blessing. We walk in faithful blessing. We have this, as you read the scriptures, you, you look at arguments, right? Watch out for this thing. Don't do that. And it's as if he says instead, right? That's what but means, right? Instead, go this way. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In the Christian Standard Version, it says, but encourage each other daily, while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. So knowing that the danger, knowing the danger is that this deception of sin is enticing, it's something that we might want to give into. We might, as 1 Corinthians 10, 7 said, or 6 said, desire evil. It's enticing. We might desire it. Knowing that that's the case, we should instead be encouraging, exhorting. If we read the sign appropriately, we recognize that the activity that we should be about is encouraging, exhorting. If this is the danger, we should do not the danger. We should do the opposite. We should do what we're instructed to do. For instance, again, at the Grand Canyon, death is the result of what? Stupid activity. So go do not stupid activity. That, that, that's, how, that's how it works. It's really that easy. I understand that some of this tension is still present, but that's as simple as it can be. Go do not stupid activity. Take pictures of animals at a distance. Hike on not cliffs. Enjoy the sun while enjoying copious amounts of water. Like, do the thing, not stupidly. So what activity are you more obsessed with? It breaks my heart to see people whose actual lives are great encouragements to all those around them in the faith to be riddled with private fear of a danger that's not theirs. It's as if I, here in Dayton, am deathly afraid of falling into the Grand Canyon right now. And I think, in fact, the bigger danger is this. The bigger issue is this. The persistent worry that we might be riddled with could actually truly be hardening. It could be proving itself out to be the fact that you're not true Israel. Because the question I have to ask that person is, why are you not believing the passages that we read above? If you claim Christ's blood and say, I am a Christian, then why are you not resting in those passages that we read earlier? 
question is not whether Christ can do it. It's whether you believe. And so for us, the encouragement that we see in verse 13 is meant to ward off the hardening, right? The so that. It's meant to ward off the hardening. Encourage each other so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. All right. I have a quote from Spurgeon is really helpful here in this aspect of, of encouragement and what we're to, to look for. He says, to these Israelites, great things had been revealed, right? For during their sojourn in the wilderness, they had been scholars in a gracious school. You yourselves have marveled that they did not learn more. <clears throat> what glorious marchings those were through the wilderness when the mountains saw thee, O God, and they trembled. When Sinai was altogether on a smoke. To what other people did God ever speak as he spoke to them? To whom did he give the tablets of divine command written with his own mysterious pen? Where else did he dwell between the cherubim and shine forth with glorious majesty? Where else did he reveal himself in type and shadow by priests and sacrifice and altars? Where else was heard so sweetly holy psalm and daily prayer? Where else smoked the morning and the evening lamb, God teaching by all of these? And yet when they heard, they did provoke. When they were taught, they refused to learn. When they were called, they went not after him. Their hearts were hardened, and they believed not the Lord their God. And so the call for us to face that hardening is to exhort, to encourage. So when we look at this text, it says to do what? Encourage them. When? Every day. Why? So that none would be hardened. And then the question is, how? How do I encourage them? With what do I encourage them? That would be my natural reading of the text. Encourage them. What are we supposed to do? Like a spiritual attaboy? You got it? Is that the encouragement? Is that sufficient? What are we supposed to actually encourage them with? Next verse, four. Because, four. Verse 14. For we have become companions. For we have come to share in Christ. Christian Standard Version, for we have become companions of the Messiah. How do we encourage them? What do we encourage them with? The fact that we are true Israel. Because we're true Israel. That's what you encourage them with. Our share is with Christ in Christ. We are his house. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. We share in a heavenly calling. He's absorbed our wrath as our propitiation. We are offspring of Abraham. We taste life because he tasted death for us. He has made us kings. He has given us the Holy Spirit. You can say with me, we get God. That's what we encourage with. Is this the stuff that encourages you? Because it is for the writer of Hebrews. That's what he's done for three chapters so far. All of that is from what we've talked about in Hebrews. There's more. There's a lot more. But all that from two chapters above. That's what we encourage each other with. That's what we press each other on with. That's what we exhort each other to. And that's the stuff that should be encouraging to you. You see, the person who knows those things to be true, not worried about falling away. They know their shepherd. They're a sheep. They live by the promises of the scriptures. That's how you hold both danger and promise in the same hands. And so how do we know whether we are true Israel. Well, are you walking in faithful blessing? Are you actually walking in faithful blessing? How are you living by these encouragements? How are you living by the fact that he's not ashamed to call you brother? Not brothers and sisters. Remember, brother in this case is speaking to the one who gets the inheritance. So sisters, you're brothers in this case, right? You get the inheritance. You get the first portion. 
how are you living each day recognizing that you're offspring of Abraham? Because that was a big deal. The Pharisees tried to hold for themselves. He said, no, we're the true children of Abraham. And he, Jesus says, what? No, no, those who know me are the true children of Abraham. You are the children of the devil. For you are liars. And you have been such since the beginning. I'm talk about an Uno reverse card. I found that one. How are you living by these things? Does it actually encourage you? Does it cause you to worship? Do you recognize them when we sing them? We're getting ready to. We have three more songs that have those things in them. Does it change your schedule to recognize that you have a heavenly calling? Does it change your choices to recognize that you have a share with Christ in Christ? Does it change your responses to your children, to your spouse, to those who are next to you, to your boss, to your coworkers, to your friends, to know that he has given you the Holy Spirit and you have God? Does it change you? Are you any different this year than you were a year ago in the very same spot because of these things? A.W. Pink says this, as fellow pilgrims in a hostile country, as members of the same family, we ought to have care for one another, 1 Corinthians 12, 25, to love one another, John 13, 34, to pray one for another, James 5, 16, to comfort one another, 1 Thessalonians 4, 18, to admonish one another, Romans 15, 14, to edify one another, 1 Thessalonians 5, 11. To have peace one with another, Mark 9.50. Only thus are we really helpful one to another. And note, the exhorting is to be done daily. But we must not be weary in well-doing. While it is called today, warns us that our sojourn in this scene is but brief. The night hastens on when no man can work. Walk in faithful blessing. Encourage one another. Last thing I want you to see is to see and trust the true reality. See and trust the true reality. The tension in these passages comes from an if-then statement. Every time. And that's a good tension because we recognize the scriptures speak very clearly to God's sovereignty but also very clearly to man's responsibility. There are two sides of the same coin. They are not at odds with each other. We hold them both firmly and easily. But there is an if-then statement. It says, this is the reality. If. And it's the if that seems to make us concerned. And we've already talked a lot about why we should not hold that with concern. But the if is this. He says, if we hold firmly. We hold our original confidence to the end. Another version, if we hold firmly, I like this, until the end, the reality that we had at the start. If you hold firmly to the end, the reality that you had at the start. Right? It is a reality, the things that God has promised. The things above describe true Israel if they hold it firmly. They believe it. They trust it. Spurgeon says this, there's still the way of salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. To believe is to trust. I met with one the other night who had imbibed the notion that saving faith was simply to believe that the doctrines of the word of God and the statements therein made are true. Now, faith includes that, but it is much more. You may believe all this book to be true and be lost, notwithstanding your belief. You must so believe it as to act upon it by trusting. Trust what, say you? Let us alter the question before we answer it. Trust whom? You have to trust in a living person, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died as a substitute for those who trust him and lives to see that those whom he bought with blood are also redeemed from their sins by power and brought home to heaven. Trust Jesus Christ, soul. 
have done with yourself as your confidence and commit your soul unto the keeping of the faithful Redeemer. This is why it matters that we have come to share in Christ. Because our believing is not just about facts. Our believing is trust in a person. That's why we say that you are in Christ. You are in a person, the person of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So the question, what do we trust? We trust Christ. Well, how do we see Christ? We'll talk about this much more next week. But the confidence, right, the reality that we hold, that we're supposed to have had from the beginning, is the promised rest. The promised rest. That's how we see Christ. Imagine, if you will, this generation we've been talking about. They go through their slavery. Moses shows up on the scene with Aaron. Crazy things start happening, right? Like water turning to blood, not just in the river, but in your pot. Frogs everywhere. The sun going away. And then being told that you have to sacrifice the lamb, paint your doorway with its blood, or your firstborn child will die. And you hear the anguish and screams of the Egyptians whose firstborn sons die. And you're told to then grab what you can carry and leave. And you're going to need money, so ask your master for some gold and they'll give it to you. And then you can leave. And you're standing at the edge of the wilderness. All your people... And you just leave. To go where? To the promised land. How excited are you? The answer is pretty excited. That reality, that hope, is what they were supposed to hold on to. That's the one that they're supposed to have until the end. That's what we're supposed to hold on to at the end. If we hold firmly until the end, the reality we had at the start. Because it is a reality. They were as good as done. All the way back in Genesis 15 when the promise was given to Abraham. When he said you will have uh, ancestors, you will have a nation that numbers more than the stars. It was as good as done. If God promised it, it's as good as done. The reality was going to be that God would have his way. The reality is going to be that the things he has promised will come to pass. The reality is that we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. You see Hebrews coming through? It is as good as done. We should see and trust the true reality. But what do they do? Let's see what the rest of our passage gives us. It gives us a negative example. We are to hold firmly until the end. This reality that we don't have to come up with, it's given to us. Hold it. Trust it. It will happen. What do we see instead? We see this cycle. If you're taking notes, I would ask you to write this down. I pray that it will be helpful for you. I use this a lot. If you're you know, all worried about your notes, I'll set it up for you. We're going to have five columns, okay? I have a word above it and a word below, so you can set up that much space. First word, I want you to see the cycle that it presents for us. I want you to write it down, and then we'll go look at it in the text. First thing is evil unbelief. Evil unbelief. Evil unbelief. Leads to, you can put an arrow or just in your next column, leads to deceit or deception. Evil unbelief. Next one is deceit or deception. The third one, rebel or rebellion. The fourth one, sin. The fifth one, disobedient as a status. Disobedient, parentheses, status. And then off to the side, put again, unbelief. Under the first one, right, fall away. Fall away. Under the second one, right, harden. 
Under the third one, right, provoked. Under the fourth one, right, fell or death. And in parentheses, right, status. And the last one, no rest. No rest. Or if you want to write in parentheses, no possession. That's an important word. No possession. So what are we talking about? There's a cycle that happens with sin. It's really helpful for us, I think, for us, walking away from the sign saying, if I'm doing the stupid, it'll look like this. So how can I know if I'm doing the stupid? I will fall into one of these pieces. I will see that I'm doing that, and I need to not do that. So take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Stop. Unbelief. It starts with unbelief. We're going to see this cycle. Unbelief. Where does it come from? The deceitfulness of sin. Deceitfulness. Deception. Where does it go to next? Rebellion. Verse 15. Who rebelled? Those who sinned. Verse 17. How do they rebel? How do they sin? They were disobedient. Summary statement, verse 19, we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. All the way around. All the way around, every time. Now what's really interesting about this is it doesn't matter necessarily where you start. Because I can guarantee you that most people who come to, to me with a problem, who confess sin to each other, aren't saying out the gate, I don't believe. They're not saying that. They're certainly not going to say, I rebelled. No one says that. No one wants to believe that that's the case. But what happens with each of these? Those who have evil unbelief fall away. Why? Because they're a category. They are unbelief. Unbelievers. That's the category. Believers, unbelievers. Evil unbelievers fall away every time. That's the natural outcome. What happens when you have deceit happening, when you're deceived? Your heart hardens. What happens when we rebel? We provoke God. What happens when we sin? The wages of sin is what? Death. You, they fell in the, in, the, in, in the wilderness, right? <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> That's a status, right? It's not a dying, it's dead. That's, that's a status. That's a, a category of person. What happens to the disobedient when you're disobedient? This is not speaking to one act of disobedience. I know that's been your question the whole time. But Pastor Rusty, I still sin. I got you. We read Romans 6, okay? It'll be okay. I still sin. You do. You will be rescued from that. But if you are disobedient as a status, say, for 40 years, every day, that is a stat, That is a disobedient category. It's a status of person. And so what do they get? No rest. No rest. They get no possession. They get no possession. So here, here's the issue. These are the two competing realities. We either fall into this cycle as a status, as a generation, as someone who is stuck here, or you walk in faithful blessing. You either do the stupid and die, or you don't do the stupid and live. It's really that easy. It's really that easy. And so for us, we can recognize as we are trying to walk in faithful blessing and not be perpetually dead, recognizing that we are a sheep, recognizing that we are Believers, that we are safe and live in a way that is faithful by saying at any point along the timeline, I can recognize if I'm doing the stupid. One commentator says this, a hardened attitude is not a sudden aberration. A hardened attitude doesn't come from, from nowhere, but it's a habitual state of mind. Sin uses the cloak of deceit with devastating effect on who? Those who are inclined to fall under its spell. Those who have what? Evil desires, 1 Corinthians 6, or 10, verse 5 and 6, right? They have evil desires. They're prone, inclined to fall under its spell. It was the deceitfulness of riches which choked the seed in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, 22. 
So the question then is, am I true Israel? Am I true Israel? How do I see and trust the true reality? My heart says that I'm one thing, but am I? In real reality, in God's reality, in God's kingdom, am I true Israel? Because the challenge is this, this declaration that comes. In verse 11, right, as we heard two weeks ago from Pastor Matt, says, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. We talked about on cold pizza after that sermon, that that was more of like an oath, saying, if they enter, if they enter, then. It's like a conditional statement. It's almost a test of like, see if I'm God or not. And it's more than just, man, if that people ends up in the promised land, I'll eat my hat. That's not like what God was saying. He's saying, if those people enter my rest, if those people, that generation that provoked my anger, enters into the promised land, then I'm not God. Now, one thing we know to be true, he is God. So they didn't enter into his rest. They were not his. They didn't want to be. Before the 40 years happened, before the 40 years in the wilderness, they didn't want it. They were across the river looking in. They heard the reports from the spies. Caleb and Joshua, ready to go. The rest of them, uh uh. They didn't want it. This declaration of him being provoked by them, if you read it rightly, is not at the end of the, the whole 40 years. He was provoked, and they were not his people before the 40-year punishment. It was just that the 40 years continued to prove out the status. You understand that? That's what I'm talking about when we talk about a status of person, a category of who you are. These people provoked God to wrath before 40 years because they did not trust him and enter the land. And the subsequent 40 years, a blessing of seeing 40 deaths a day, 40 funerals a day, for 40 years. That's how long, on average, it takes to kill everyone off in that generation. 40 deaths a day for 40 years. At the end of the 40 years, they still didn't want him. They have not known my ways, he says. And so then we get the Matthew passage. Depart from me, I never knew you. As he says in our passage, they shall not enter my rest. You recognize when we see these warnings, they're serious. Take the danger seriously. Because there's an entire world out there who's still susceptible to the danger. And there's a danger for us that we might not know his ways. How do we know? Walk in faithfulness. Do what he says. Know him. Do you know the voice of your shepherd? We're on vacation this past week and we're walking around different bookstores. And we see these five minutes with God, one minute with God. It's as if it was like a sale and we're trying to get as low as we possibly can to spend time in devotionals with the Lord. If you're not spending time with him, you don't know him. The only person you're deceiving is yourself. And rather than see just their <laughs> craziness, we should instead marvel at the patience of God. The patience of God. It's as if there was a second evaluation. He made the declaration at the beginning of the 40 years and said, you're not making it. You're going to wander off and your generation is going to die. And it's as if he evaluated it again at the end of the 40 years. And he says, you still ain't. Marvel the patience of God. Spurgeon says this, a fruitless tree standing for 40 years. Why didn't anyone take it out of the ground? Oh, the stupendous mercy of God. But they could not enter into his rest after all. Will it be the same with you who've heard the gospel for many years? What's to become of you? When so much patience is lost upon you, what must happen next? I scarcely feel as if I could pity you. I seem as if I pitied God that he has borne your indifference so long as the only return for his great love. And what manner has he acted that you should so ungenerously treat him and continue still 
to provoke him. I fear, ere long it will be said of you, they could not enter in because of unbelief. We have this magnificent conclusion. So we see. It just sums it up for us. So we see what? They could not enter in. Why? Because of unbelief. It is only ever and simply that. Unbelief. This alone shuts them out. Was it what they did? No. What they did didn't help. It couldn't help. What was it? Unbelief. It says this, Brethren, Canaan is a type to us of the great and goodly things of the covenant of grace which belong to believers. But if we have no faith, we cannot possess a single covenant blessing. This day, in the proclamation of the gospel, this sermon, the demand is made of faith in God. I am demanding of you from the scriptures that you believe in God. And if there be no faith, no matter how rich the gospel, how full its provisions, and how precious the portion which God has prepared, none of us can ever enter into the enjoyment of them. Church, as you walk this next year, as you hope to be different in a year from now, it's going to take more than a minute. It's going to take knowing God. It's going to take believing him at his word. It's going to take knowing that you're his sheep. As shepherds of a flock, we'll shake you and tell you you're a sheep. Do sheep things. Stop worrying about whether you're a goat. If you're walking in unfaithfulness, we'll tell you. We're kind of known for that. We know when there's goats. We know when there's sheep. To the best of our ability, we feed you. And if you don't eat, we wonder. If you don't show back up in the pen, we start to wonder. We stand as shepherds for the great shepherd. He's going to ask us, what happened to you? Hebrews 13, 17. He's going to ask what happened. At that time, we're going to say, they were furry, but I think they had horns. Or, they were your sheep. I know they hear your voice. I see them following you. This year, believe and trust. As a sheep, trust the shepherd. That is the true reality for the true Israel. Let's pray. Right, God, we love you. We thank you so much for being a shepherd to us. Father, in such a way that you protect us, you own us, Father, we know from the scriptures that you don't just do that. You bring us to life. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. We are made alive, not just because of Christ, but in Christ. Father, that possession that we have is what is supposed to give us the confidence to hold fast. It's supposed to be the thing in which we boast. Father, we can't be a boasting people, as we've talked about in the past couple of weeks, if we don't recognize that we're your sheep. Father, there is true danger that people would deceive themselves and be deceived. But Father, it's so clear who's yours. They love you. They know your voice. They follow you. Father, as we celebrate what it means to be a covenant family, this is what we're talking about. Father, what would it look like for this flock to trust you fully? to run in such a way that they know they are assured. Father, they love you. They know you. They read your word. They do what you say. They encourage one another daily. Father, that we might not be hardened to sin. And we might not be deceived. And Father, that we will find on the day that none here had evil, unbelieving hearts that desired evil. You make it so clear. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the picture that you gave us and our fathers that fell and our fathers that have risen to new life in you. Father, we pray for our church, our generation, that we would be found in you. 
Lord, we pray that we would be more faithful than the generation in Joshua and teach our children. Father, that it wouldn't be by the skin of our teeth that we enter into rest, but that we run hard after the prize that we have in your son. Father, we thank you for these good gifts, and we pray that we would not enjoy them in vain, but in such a way that gives glory to you. Father, that we might know you, that we might truly love you, and that we would not be those that were disobedient and rebelled and provoked you to anger, but, Father, those that obeyed out of great love for our king to show your glory to the world. Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.